Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us. And uh, we are here today, uh, virtually connected with each other uh, over the miles because of the wonders of the internet. And we're glad for that. But uh, I am C.R. Whiteley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church here in the Pacific Northwest, and I've been a professor of philosophy, and I have uh, written a few books. The latest book that has been published that I've written is entitled In the House of Tom Bombadil. And by the way, I'm going to be at Gross City College uh, next week to talk about it. Uh, So the day that this comes out next week will be the day right before I'm doing a talk. Uh, I'll be there on Tuesday. I believe it's the 15th. Yep, Tuesday the 15th, doing it, delivering a couple of talks on Tom Bombadil. But anyway, if you're in the Gross City area, you can connect with the school and learn about that. Enough about me. Uh, Glenn, it's your turn. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor and senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and a ministry associate with Reflections Ministry. Great. Thanks, Glenn. Tom. Now, Tom, it's your day. Why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself and then take us right into Uber Hobbits. All righty. I'm Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, and teach philosophy as well. Uh, one of the places is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And yes, Uber Hobbits. I think it's good to uh, to jump into that uh, fun title. Um, it's the, the article that I kind of picked to kind of riff from or off of is the Uber Hobbits, Tolkien, Nietzsche, and the Will to Power by a, someone named Douglas Blount, Blount. Um, I don't know Douglas Blount. I don't really know anything else about him other than he has this article that showed up in this little book called The Lord of the Rings and Philosophy, One Book to Rule Them All. Um, In this little book, the reason I picked this article is because it's something that allows some of the topics that we address in different settings and from different um, fuller essays to become a little more accessible, I think, even to kind of older kids, um, something a parent could sit down and read this essay um, with their their uh, older kids, teens, um, or even college students, and actually start to introduce some of the ideas that are floating around and ways in which figures like Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, or, or Christianity um, more largely address those themes. Um, so it's not an in-depth article. It's not, you know, it's it wouldn't satisfy the scholar looking for uh, a scholarly support for a particular position. Um, but it does introduce things, and I think in a way that is decent. Now, I'm going to pivot that off of a different article. So this one, Uber Hobbits, Tolkien, Nietzsche, and the Will to Power, is kind of going to be... Uh, unpacked a little in relationship to a much more in-depth article called Tolkien and Nietzsche, Philology and Nihilism by Peter Candler. I think it was a it was either a big paper or a thesis at Baylor University. Um, but it really gets into some of the deeper issues for those who want to kind of unpack it more. So what is the article up to or what am I up to in in the talk today? Well, the first thing I want to do before really getting into it is kind of bring into comparison and contrast a little someone like Tolkien and his vision um, in relation to one like Nietzsche and uh, his vision or anti-vision or whatever you want to call it. Um, I think that difference um, really brings 
into a place of kind of tangibility. Um, really, a different the way a different perspective unfolds itself uh, and impacts us, and I think that's something we can see by the significance of their works and works that have come under the influence of such figures. So with Tolkien, for example, we have someone who I think we've seen in previous episodes would affirm very strongly creation and our place in it and our contributors to it. Um, and one of the things I got from the Peter Candler article um, is just how significantly Nietzsche tried to definitely reject any notion of creation. <laughs> um, and he, his is what uh, others have called an alternative kerygma, or, uh, or gospel, if you will. Nietzsche didn't see himself merely as trying to, to kind of outflank philosophically or theologically Christianity so much as offer a different gospel, a different way of relating to, to um, reality or what is, a different way of understanding it, and a different way of culture building or, or tearing down, if you will. Um, so let me just leave it there and maybe pick up any of your thoughts on that kind of comparison or contrast or anything related to it. Yeah, I think there, one of the things that perhaps may surprise some fans of Tolkien is that Tolkien was very, I think, self-consciously responding to Nietzsche and some of these uh, intellectual trends. Uh, some people consider, you know, Tolkien just sort of a, an anachronism, somebody who just wanted to live in the past and wasn't uh, engaged in kind of the intellectual currents of the 20th century. But that's crazy. I mean, everything he did was intended to uh, respond to or refute uh, many of the things that he saw swirling around him. And so I, I think that the ring of power, uh, the, the whole approach to um, the nature of power and its... Uh, kind of a, a seductive character is really uh, uh, something that obviously is at the center of, of the Lord of the Rings, but not in an accidental way. It's, it's, it's placed there to respond to these, these uh, you know, this new gospel, as you said, you know, the, the, the new gospel of Nietzsche, <laughs> yeah. gospel according to Nietzsche. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would add that it, um, the idea of Nietzsche rejecting creation is more than just sort of a historical or scientific statement. Um, it, you know, it's easy to think, well, you know, there are a lot of scientists out there who reject the idea of creation. A lot of people out there reject intelligent design or whatever. Um, it, it, for Nietzsche, it goes considerably further than that, um, in that he understood fully what the implications of a godless universe were. Uh, which is that there is no morality, there is no ultimate right or wrong, good or evil, um, there is no ultimate standards of aesthetics, uh, which is an important theme in Nietzsche. Uh, all of these things follow immediately if you have a godless universe and therefore no creation, or maybe no creation and therefore a godless universe. I'm not sure what order to put that in. Yeah, I think that's a very profound point to make, uh, Glenn, because I think most of the Scientists I have known, even world-class scientists, and I've known a few, are terribly naive on this point. They they really think <laughs> that uh, you know that they can keep their um, you know their science within this sort of uh, bounded space, and that morality will be able to just sort of like proceed just fine, or they'll they'll be able to do something 
like, um, you know, ground the morality in uh, a kind of naturalism that uh, it really can't be made compatible with, with morality. You know, uh, it really does kind of get down to who's in charge and who has the power. Uh, and, uh, you know, if that's all there is to it, then, you know, it's a pretty bleak universe that we, that we live in, in spite of all of the wonder that people like Carl Sagan claimed to possess or have with regard to the cosmos, you know, when they looked at it. Well, and then along with that, we, we can add that in a lot of ways, you know, Nietzsche isn't only operating out of atheism, he's operating out of Darwinism. And if you understand survival of the fittest, if you understand the issue of struggle uh, in a natural context, and especially if you understand it in a Darwinian context, uh, survival of the fittest doesn't apply if one species battling another. It applies within a species. Right. In other words, I outcompete other people in my uh, in my species in order to pass on my genes to my descendants. Uh, that automatically points to this. It seems to me it goes directly toward Nietzsche's will to power. That that is not that is not only a philosophical idea, but it is an evolutionary necessity. Yeah. I think all of this really um, is hinting around at what I really think is at issue when um, when Candler is talking about sort of this this notion of two different um, gospels, which are kind of the positing of what what is um, the case. And that's what he, he sort of means by that. And I think with Nietzsche, ob obviously what he means by there being um, no creation um, is not that there isn't something. Um, what he means, is, what he wants to do is kind of get a hold of what that something is. And if you notice it, it it's bound up with this issue of power, which Darwin later explains in its own way, struggle, survival, the will to ex continue existing, right? Um, the will to, to be uh, found in the struggle of becoming. Um, and I think what you really do, see there is 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 the contrast between a kind of creation vision versus this kind of Nietzschean power vision. And that is on the fundamental grant, uh, reality of what's ultimate. What is the character of what is ultimate? You know, we, we've used the term ontology. This is sort of first and foremost an ontology question. You know, what is the character of everything that is? Is it sort of a plenitude, infinite plenitude of perfection and being um, which exists in 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 its own kind of beauty, goodness, and truth without limit, or is it some sort of chaotic, violent um, energy, if you will, um, that that just gets tapped into by destroying and therefore creating an impulse to create and destroy and create and destroy? I mean, you know, this is kind of at the heart of these alternative visions, whereas the Christian vision, because it has um, an infinite plenitude of being um, and a logos at its core, if you will, therefore everything created is analogous to that creation. It has a harmony, an order, and move towards the that which is ultimate. And it has meaning, purpose that aren't projected or forced on reality that are part of the very fabric of it. And it is life-giving. 
and it's life-giving in such a way that the chaotic and the conflictual are not central to that life-giving, but actually are disruptions of it and things to be overcome through a different kind of power that God is compared to the Nietzschean type of power. Let me break it down real quick to one thing I hold have talked about before. Let's think of it really as a conflict between the classical vision of God and the alternative that developed in the West, where God shifts from being the ultimate source um, and ground of all order of things to simply sheer power that has nothing else bound up with it other than the assertion of its will. And that really is the kind of different move that we have between Nietzsche and, say, I would say, Tolkien. Yeah, I think that that's that's you know uh, important to keep in mind, particularly if we we care about uh, the integrity of Tolkien's uh, you know writing. Uh, I, I think that what we uh, unfortunately uh, are witnessing in popular culture because of the films and now the television show is a kind of uh, freewheeling approach to things that loses sight of what Tolkien was up to at a metaphysical uh, level and. Uh, almost contradicts or even it does contradict some of the things that he was up to. Um, and I can't help but think that Tolkien would have preferred uh, not seeing a film made at all to seeing some of the stuff that's being done with, with his, yeah. um, his, his, his work. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it, it, we can pull this back to another theme that we've talked about before, particularly uh, you, Tom, uh, and that's the the idea of everything as gift, the gift character of of the creation and everything else, because you know fundamentally, the creation of the universe is a raw exercise of power, but it is a power that isn't the sort of power as you just said. It's not the sort of power that Nietzsche is talking about. It is a power that is expressed. In, in gift, in, in giving rather than taking, in seeking good for others rather than just its own self-satisfaction. And I, th I think that that, is, that really should be fundamental as we're, we're thinking about the nature of, of uh, power and what it means to Tolkien versus... Um, uh, versus Nietzsche. Now, now Tolkien was very clear that, uh, for example, magic. Uh, he says that what well, all magic is designed to do is to enslave others. It's to exert power over others or over nature. Yeah. You know, so he was very down on magic. But um, again, that's a different sort of thing than what we see in a Christian vision of uh, of the all powerful God in creation. Yeah, yeah I think something that's important to kind of note here, Glenn, and I'm completely on board with what you said, but the very givenness of things is an offense to many people because in uh, the act of giving, uh, you are determining what someone needs. Uh, you're also determining uh, kind of the limits of what is possible for them. So, you know, for example, at, at Christmas time when I was a kid, 
uh, I would ask for things and then get other things. I don't know if, if you've experienced that, but <laughs> I'd ask for a GI Joe headquarters and I'd get socks. <laughs> and my and my and my parents would say, "Well, you need socks. You don't need a GI Joe headquarters." And I'd say, "I'm an authority on what I need." I wouldn't say it that way, but <laughs> that's my that was my attitude. Uh, and so what what happens, I think, is there is a kind of humility that's required to receive a gift. Because not only does the giver, in some sense, define you through what is given, uh, but you are obligated, because you've received, to make some kind of return. So pride, hubris, is uh, you know uh, bound up with sin, and we don't want the gift. We want everything on our own terms. And I think that this is where, um, I think this is a blind spot for modernity, uh, because, well, in a way, I think everybody knows it, but nobody wants to own up to it, that, that really what's going on in modernity with people like Nietzsche and others is just simply uh, hubris and uh, found uh, expressing itself in a very sophisticated way. Yeah. Yeah, I think you have this kind of resentment um, that, that, that something, um, anything, um, could be other than what we want it or will it to be for ourselves. And, and I think that that is definitely, um, brought to the fore, I think in the, in modernity, um, but also especially in someone like Nietzsche. And I think there is, I think this whole notion of gift, I think is, is very significant. I think it was, I think, um, Tolkien was conscious of the gratuity of creation itself. He speaks about it in his letters all the time, and, and especially the way in which how that made a distinction between what he was up to, as we talked before about fairy stories and, and sub-creating, um, almost as a, verse, uh, as a type of composing, um, not this, this way in which we kind of think of libertarian creating almost as if we are the creator. Um, or the difference between something like Aquinas would talk about the difference between art, which is is kind of this, um, it's almost it's almost a virtue in a sense of of being able to to enact something in a way where we can transfer a good to something else, an external object, versus uh, uh, what you know praxis, which is sort of our our own doing which does something on us. We've in the modern world kind of blurred those two to where we become the work of art. And I think Nietzsche would be to blame for some of this in the sense that doing and and making get get blurred together and then lose their kind of virtuous character. But I'll, I'll kind of get back to that in a bit. Um, before moving to what uh, Glenn was talking about, sort of the gift character, and then what you're talking about, Chris, um, about humility, because I think we're going to see that in the article with friendship, community, um, Frodo as a contrast to kind of uh, Zarathustra. Um, what you see is um, uh, the quote at the very beginning of the article from Nietzsche is um, his flipping of, of kind of what he considered to be the Christian vision. He says, what is good, right? All that heightens the feeling of power, the will to power, power itself in, in man. What is bad? all that proceeds from weakness. Um, what is happiness? The feeling that power increases, that resistance is overcome. And uh, one of the things Candler talks about at the beginning is he tried to kind of take what I've heard a lot of people talk about is that, that uh, sort of Tolkien remained indifferent to kind of modern 
philosophical works and things like that, and that he may have only gotten a hold of Nietzsche through someone like Chesterton, who had a very introductory reading um, in his, and he wrote about it in his Heretics. But I, I tend to agree. I think those little uh, pub conversations were not little pub conversations. And I think that is where you really saw the, the flow of, of what was running through uh, the academic world, um, entering, e- I think, even more in those pub settings than the full you know, University of Oxford, for that matter, because Oxford very slow moving in terms of novelty. But through, the, through literature, you had uh, Bernard Shaw, you had Yeats. Um, David's, I mean, you had figures like this that were translate already translating and incorporating those ideas. And I, I'm sure that kind of stuff was not far from the reach of, of figures that were writing like Tolkien, Lewis, and, and the rest. Yeah, I don't see how anyone could uh, believe that Tolkien wasn't uh, fully aware of the currents going on in, in larger sort of intellectual milieu. The only way that I think you could kind of have that kind of blinkered approach or sort of think way of thinking about Tolkien is if, you know, you really do believe that unless something is documented, it doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know how academics well, had academics, if you can't point to the jot and the tittle and say, yeah. this is where Tolkien read Nietzsche, yeah. he never read Nietzsche. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, yeah. we've been in, in, in well, environments like this where just in the normal course of conversation, we're covering centuries of, of, of debate yeah. uh, just among ourselves. Uh, we don't write it down. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, just think about Lewis. Yeah. The idea that Lewis was unaware of Nietzsche <laughs> is absurd. Yeah. The idea that Lewis and Tolkien meeting at uh, the Burden Baby uh, or anywhere else would never have addressed any of this stuff, that these kinds of things would never have come up when we know that Lewis in his atheist days debated atheism with Tolkien. Well, and two, this is this is just patently yeah. absurd. Yeah, and two, just think about the fact that, you know, our experience at, say, faculty dinners, when you're sitting across the table from some, you know, sort of rabid feminist or you're talking yeah. to some atheist in the physics department. You know, we have these conversations all the time with people outside of the sort of the spheres that we normally, you know, travel in, in our, in our, in our, you know, you know, uh, in our normal daily, you know, rounds. That's right. Uh, you know, it's obvious to me that yeah. <laughs> these guys were having conversations with a wide range of people. Yeah. Yeah. And they, their works were, I mean, they, they read everything. <laughs> they didn't even need it to be in Oxford. They were reading, they could read it coming out of the journals written in Germany at the time. But interestingly, um, uh, one of the things Candler does pull off is that, that you, you, had, uh, you, you have a contrast between, um, I- irony, if you will, between Tolkien, the theological, beer-loving conversationalist versus the teetotaler Nietzsche, the ascetic, right? Uh, <laughs> all the while... Blame, Nietzsche blaming Christians for being unjoyful and, and basically cutting off life, you know. Uh, anyway, that was just kind of a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that, that is an important thing to bring out about Nietzsche because I think that some, some guys, particularly kind of in the neo-pagan world, have this idea that Nietzsche was some kind of, you know, gym rat where he was always <laughs> pushing weights and he was, you know, uh, going out with his buddies drinking. And now the guy was a, a wimp. The guy uh, was just never got out, and he was socially awkward, and he actually had a lot of resentment toward 
uh, guys who actually did exemplify in their own physical persons, you know, sort of outwardness, uh, extroversion, physical prowess. He, he, he did not uh, operate well in those circles. He, he was a picture of resentment himself. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was, I, I think that was one of the things Chesterton honed in on very quickly. And one of the things that's interesting is that Chesterton notes his kind of elitist psychology and the way in which the Superman or the Ubermitch uh, develops is, is what, uh, what, um, Chesterton read as very anti-manly, if you will, anti-heroic and very weak um, in, in the end. Of course, it, it wreaked havoc, but he thought it was sort of a, definitely something that, that played towards that elitism and was very cut off from real real grit in the, in the real living that, that uh, such a figure um, you know, would, would, would hold. Um, but yeah, I think it was in Chesterton's, well, it's in his Heretics where he talks about uh, Nietzsche on that way for those uh, interested. Yeah, it's um, one of the things that I think we we miss out on is if you read early moderns, uh, early modern writers, medieval writers, things like that on the topic of masculinity, one of the key things that is essential if you are going to be masculine is that you have to keep your emotions under control. That, um, you know, it, 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 allowing your emotions to dominate your behavior, uh, those kinds of things that Nietzsche would probably place under the category of will to power, uh, those were all things that were seen as effeminate traits. Hmm. Hmm. You know, so this, this kind of goes along with with uh, Chris's observation about Nietzsche being, well, a wimp. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think, you know, that's, I think there's, that's worth, uh, I think, developing further at some point, because I I really think that the way people get the image of Nietzsche is though it's, it's kind of, you know, creating, you know, the Viking, you know, <laughs> or something of that, or or the way it was interpreted through through uh, through National Socialism. That's another show, but I mean, it, it's a way of being um, brought into to that kind of world. And and I again, it wreaks havoc. There's no question about it. Any, any kind of return to that kind of breakdown of of creation. Um, is going to do damage. I mean, that's. I mean, that's the. That's what you get in the garden. Is you know, did God say, "Are things ordered this way? Um, are you not? Shouldn't you be like God and knowing good for evil, determining it for yourself?" Um, in in that case, you you uh, you know, what, who can, if the creativity destroys, right? You know, it's anti it's antichrist. It's anti creation. I mean, it's so you can see the the vision there. Um, but maybe it's worth returning to the uh, Uber Hobbits uh, text just to kind of get your thoughts on the way in which um, uh, the the kind of power of the ring in Tolkien um, definitely has has um, a lot of affinity towards with Sauron and the kind of desire for power, the de- desire to control. I think you really see it in our world in, in many ways, but especially in, in the world that is developing in terms of technology and the way in which, um, you know, transhumanism is really starting to get where they want to overcome um, humanity as we know it and want to create almost this, this superhumanity. But in doing it, as as you hear, it really turns us into to basically uh, projects of of a certain elite or or a certain kind of technology that we become enslaved to. 
So um, maybe that, maybe I'll leave it there and let you guys kind of riff off of that. Yeah, I think he made a really good point where he argued that Sauron is sort of the ultimate Ubermensch, uh, that that Nietzsche was um, was advocating. But the thing I found most intriguing uh, from the angle that he was taking in here is something he didn't exactly say. Mm. But in the ring, a lot of Sauron's power is wrapped up and it's all built around domination and control and, and so on. But the interesting thing is that any mortal that gets hold of it gets enslaved by it. Mm. So what what he is suggesting, I think what Tolkien is suggesting, is that the Nietzschean will to power doesn't actually free you, it enslaves Mm. you. Yeah, it's a kind of trap. It's a kind of trap. It's one of the things that I think uh, I was uh, working to bring to the surface in my book on Bombadil, particularly that episode where... Bombadil puts the ring on and nothing happens to him, and he just sort of flippantly gives it back to Frodo. Um, the thing we know about Tom is no one can catch him. Uh, he's uh, the master because he's free. Yeah. And so this this ring that catches everybody else, uh, even the best, people like Gandalf and Galadriel feared it because they knew they would have been snared if they tried to use it even for good things. Uh, you don't see that happen with Bombadil. But I think that's right, Glenn. I think there's something. Now, I, one of the things I wonder about, uh, and I didn't get into my book about or on, is, is when we talk about power, are we talking about, uh, in the ring anyway, with the, the ring of power, is it, is it uh, simply raw power or is it in some sense power that has been um, kind of uh, in, in infected with Saran's will? So if it's the second then what you're becoming is uh, corrupted by, you know, Saran's will and not necessarily just power itself. Uh, if it were power itself, then it would be drawing out of you the wickedness that you already possess. You see what I'm getting at? I do think, though, that the whole idea that we could abstract power uh, and distill it in this way uh, so that we could use it for whatever end we please uh, Tolkien is criticizing in a different uh, part of the Lord of the Rings when he talks about uh, Saruman and his quest for knowledge. And uh, in order to acquire that knowledge, he has to break things. Uh, in other words, you, the, the, the power is that is in creation is already directed towards certain ends, yeah. the goods of the things that uh, the power is uh, you know, given to. And if you want to take... Uh, that power from those creatures in order to use it toward your chosen end, you've got to break them to do that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very interesting because, um, uh, I mean, I think that's one of the key differences with Tolkien, for example, in his sub-creation um, versus the way in which Nietzsche is trying to kind of get to this nihilistic power center of, of at the bottom of the realities that words relate to and and, and do this kind of uh, work whereas there is a, there is a capacity to be creative analogous to the creator that um, that we are as creatures allowed to participate in where it doesn't even though it, it can go away from the way you know we're not just mimicking the way things are but in according to the way things are there's this whole range of ways that being can be participated in 
in good ways, which fairy is one way of fairy telling and story and analogy and myth and song. These are all different valid ways of participating creatively in being where there is a kind of anti-being, if you will, or a, a resistance to it um, going on in this Nietzsche, Nietzschean vision. And, and it's, it's interesting that um, the, the way in which the, the you know, you were mentioning power um, in, in Sauron, in, in the way, does his will shape it? I, I mean, I think in a way when we, we shift in the West to a kind of a strong voluntarism, whatever Christian contributions to that, um, and God becomes simply uh, understood as kind of the biggest power around the most dominant. You have a change in the Christian understanding then of to have dominion and, and, and dominion. And I think a lot of times we don't wean ourselves from that change enough, and then we kind of play along with um, having dominion in, in a Christian sense, but along the lines almost of this, this Nietzschean will to power. Um, you've mentioned it before, both of you, in terms of I, the way ideology functions. Um, I, and, and I think that, you know, like you, I, I think your point, Chris, that, that from, a, from a kind of theological angle, is is Satan is the prince of the power of the air, right? The one who becomes that that on that largest ontic principle until Christ comes and and puts it back in the right place, and because of that, there is a way in which power gets bent towards this this uh, this ill and evil, this attempt to pervert real dominion. Along with that, it's worth noting that at least it, in one spot, it talked about the ring giving you power in proportion to your your strength or, or whatever. So there's a sense in which it is taking what's in you and, and amplifying it. But the other part of it is that the nature of the power itself is what Tolkien would describe as magical. It is the very nature of it is based on dominating things and people. Hmm. So I think that I think that that's that's critical. You have to have that in there because otherwise someone like of goodwill like Frodo would not have been corrupted. Someone of goodwill like Gandalf or Galadriel would not have been corrupted. It is the very nature of the power itself that is corrupting. Getting back to to Thompson's uh, observation about uh, how there can be a tendency in even Christian circles to use or to understand power in a Nietzschean sense. Um, I've witnessed it. Uh, sometimes when I hear, say, guys talk about exercising dominion in, say, their homes, I, I can't help but detect a kind of Nietzschean spirit in which uh, the idea is to sort of exercise control uh, in an overpowering sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that, in that, you're the biggest guy around. Okay, we get, we we understand. You can actually physically make your wife and children do things, but is that really what we're, what we're up to here when we're exercising dominion as heads of house, uh, or do we, uh, you know, strive for consent? Is consent somehow important in all of this? Uh, there's a marvelous uh, story that Wendell Berry tells in, in a collection of short stories entitled "That Distant Land," and, and the title of the story is "Consent." Hmm. And it's about uh, it's about the uh, the wooing and the courtship of a uh, of a of a guy named Tolt Proudfoot, uh, for, uh, and, and he's this huge guy, this just like a, a mountain of a man, and he falls in love with this diminutive little schoolmarm who's <laughs> like maybe all of five foot tall, and uh, he uh, 
is he's striving for her consent. Uh, you know, he, he asks her to marry him. Uh, is he could force her to marry him if this were, say, you know, a crude, uh, you know, environment. Uh, but he's uh, the story is 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 told within a in a Christian, you know, environment in which, you know, consent is is something precious and 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 longed for. Now, uh, you know, as a head of a house or as the you know the chairman of the board or the captain in the army or whatever, you know, you have a lot of power, and you can make people do things. Um, but in order to do, you know, to order to get people to do things, you have to make them afraid of you. You have to threaten them. You may even have to harm them in some way. And isn't it a lot better when, <laughs> when people say, you know what, you're right. I really want to do what you want to do. I think you've got some wisdom here and I understand we need to work together and somebody has to have some authority around here. It might as well be you, <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, I think this is, this is the, the so when we exercise dominion, Wherever, whatever institution we find ourselves in, yeah, there are times where you just have to like do what you have to do, particularly when you're dealing with wickedness. But yeah. when you're not dealing with wickedness and you're just dealing with wills uh, and, and you don't want to separate the will from the power uh, that, that is, you know, God given and, uh, you know, granted to that person uh, to pursue the ends of their own choosing. Yeah, I, I think there's, I mean, there's a lot, lot there. I mean, I think one would be right at the the heart of of Christian understanding of God and and creation and everything else, and the way in which God is power, and anything else that has it has it through as gift, and in having it as gift, it is a communication of power from power itself, God to be used in a creaturely way that has, you know, has a dominion that corresponds analogously with God as, as having ultimate sovereignty. So of course it's a, it's a delegate, you know, it's been delegated, but to be carried out in a, in a similar way. And what is the way that God carries that out? Well, he carries it out non-conflictually. I'm talking the heart of original creation, right? God is the very power that creates us to be the powers that we have and have the power that we exercise. And he does that as gift and not in competition. So God does not begrudge us by giving us the, this, the plane on which to enact our creatureliness and receive the gift of the creatureliness of the other. So in the household, for example, the way in which we carry out that use of power and, and having a kind of like head of the household is analogous in some ways to that way of dealing things, receiving the gift of the other and not lording over their wills, but actually creating, creating and cultivating um, uh, that, that household in such a way that those gifts are able to, to reach their fullest in their contribution in place to the whole. Um, and, and this isn't idealism. I mean, this is actually the, the, the distortion of that is what crushes the creature um, and, and brings about what you know feminists and everything else want want to escape, be liberated from. Whereas with this power, because because it's ordered to power the right way, is exercised in a way that is for the good of the whole, um, not simply for self possession of the one in charge. And I think there is a, a big big difference there. And I think this self-possession or possessing things, possessing power and controlling things is at the heart of this distortion. Yeah, I think that's a very good point, Tom. I, I do want to just add at this point that, 
even uh, when you do everything right, people can still resent you yeah. because you just have more power and more authority yeah. than they they have. So I, I don't want to lead any guys uh, you know along in some sort of uh, uh, you know uh, I don't know flower child way of thinking to believe that if they just exercise authority right, that everybody in their circle will just like think they're super cool and will want to yeah. go along with everything they <laughs> that they sh- they should go along with. Uh, you know, if 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 that's not true for God. And it's not, (laughs) you know, the one who is the source of all good things and whose authority is always exercised in the right way. If we, if people can resent God, then they can resent me as a father. They can resent you as a boss, but that doesn't give you the sort of the freedom to be a jerk either. But it, but I think we just had to be like realistic that even when we do everything right, there are going to be people who resent it. Well, and I think that goes to that next part in in the kind of the essay where where what you have is the building. I mean, you have the the, the hobbits um, that, though tempted to be uber hobbits, right? I mean, he talks about Sam, um, but Sam then looks at those higher gifts of of you know the community and the friendships and and the the virtues tied to those, and those become emblematic of a, the the higher participation in power that actually overcomes that distorted power. And that was found in the humility, the self-giving, the self-sacrifice. So I think that really captures that point. I mean, what, what is what, you know, the, the, the pure self-communication of goods for the creature is already at the heart of creation, right? That God's getting, getting uh, no advantage out of this to his perfection, but is sheer, sheerly self-giving in the sense of communicating all those goods for the creature. And so by creaturely analogy, um, there is, you know, a a kind of semblance of the way in which we are to carry out dominion. And in doing that in a way, rather like Sam and, and Frodo and the hobbits in light of the gift character of things and these, these virtues um, that, you know, are clearly ultimately Christian virtues. um, They set the conditions up. Um, for over overcoming, you know, those distortions of dominion. Uh, interesting point. Maybe we could riff off of this. Is when he talks about in, in the in the uh, Lord of the Rings, um, when uh, when um, Frodo actually does, you know, shows mercy to Gollum, and that actually sets the conditions up later for Gollum to to go after that power, but end up bringing it down into what Frodo wasn't able to do on his own at that moment. Yeah, there's a, a marvelously uh, kind of, uh, I guess, uh, mysterious uh, outworking of providence and all, and all that. You know, back to what you were talking about earlier, though, with regard to Sam uh, and his humility. You know, he recognizes the goods, the goods that that uh, that he uh, admires and loves. You know, in terms of his, you know, friendship, the, the overarching, you know, uh, mission. But he's also very realistic about himself. Yeah. So you have this this uh, you know inner dialogue that Sam has, where he corrects himself, kind of yeah. comes back to earth, and then uh, you've got uh, the fact that at the end of the story, in terms of the growth of the characters, obviously Frodo has grown to to be a, a, a great uh, and powerful personality, but uh, next to him is Sam. Sam goes from being the least to the greatest over the course of the story. He becomes the mayor 
you know, inhabitant. And even though, you know, Mary and Pippin have had adventures too, and they've actually physically become more powerful because of the Entrot that they drank, if you remember. Uh, they've grown in stature and physical strength. Uh, it's really uh, the moral authority of Sam that uh, everyone recognizes by the end. And uh, that moral authority uh, is recognized not just by the members of that, that you know, fellowship, but by the larger community of hobbits when he's made the mayor. Yeah, I, I think what you really see going on there is, is the way in which this you know, vision, I, I would argue, steeped in the reality of creation. I think that is one of the things that is fantastic about what Tolkien is up to. And he says it in his letters, this is what he's up to, um, is that he's able to, to do things with characters um, that, you know, however, you know, well-written in German verse, uh, Zarathustra is not able to, to embody or even fathom. I think Nietzsche, we've mentioned this before, I think he was jealous of Christianity in many ways for its capacity to do these things. And he even presents a caricature of Christianity in order to to kind of make his vision more appealing. And I think this is what uh, I think a lot of, sadly, the social justice warriors um, fall into the trap with, um, even though they don't want to go where Nietzsche actually thought. I mean, Nietzsche thought exploitation uh, of the other was a good thing. He thought that the, the powerful taking advantage of others. And I sadly think what you see from from kind of a lot of the equity projects is that there almost is a, is a, a vindictiveness and then an attempt to do the same once they get power that was done unto to a lot of of those who hadn't had it before. Yeah, I saw I saw something you posted the other day from uh, thus spoke Zarathustra Glenn uh, about the tarantula about uh, you yeah. know can you can you explain to listeners a little bit about what Nietzsche was saying there. Um, what what he was saying was he, he compared people who talk about equality with tarantulas and basically said that what all this talk about equality is really about is uh, hatred of those who have uh, power or influence or wealth or anything else. And it's really just based around envy and the desire to destroy them. There's really no concern about justice or anything like that. All of that is a sham for envy, which is of all the deadly sins, arguably the most destructive. Yeah. yeah and you see it certainly when people, uh, these, these advocates of social justice actually acquire a little power for themselves. What do they do? They buy their third mega, you know, their, their third mansion on the coast. Yeah. They become, you know, uh, you know, like an animal farm. They, you know, you know, they become, they are those pigs that replace the farmer. Yeah. It, it, it that's yeah. exactly right. There's no transvaluation of value, you know. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get you don't get any of that stuff. You might want to try to ex you might want to try to explain that phrase to our <laughs> listeners, Tom. Yeah, right, right, uh, yeah right. well, it's it's similar to the notion of beyond good and evil, right? That that you can somehow uh, transcend the the values that are uh, distortions of what should be valuable. And in that, you move beyond any, and you almost become the grounds of a new type of valuation. Um, you see almost transgenderism trying to do that in terms of transcending the binaries of male-female, creating a fluidity, and then having a new conception of what it means to be a person um, and, and the range of, of possibilities. So you are beyond any kind of 
determinations prior to your own desire to be beyond those. I mean, and this is, I think, um, it was curious. Candler did note um, somewhere in his essay the the kind of fact that Zarathustra tied to Zoroaster, um, where he's getting the okay. name from, also kind of connects him to some Gnostic elements, at least kind of this oppositions of, of light and uh, darkness and these dualisms. And, and he really, he didn't flesh out much, but he's talking about this kind of Gnostic hangover that that is is entailed in this vision and of course you can see it with with uh the imposition of will um maybe not not secret knowledge but the imposition of something higher than the the formed created uh uh universe interestingly i there was a quote i i had uh posted not long ago by the candler article which really talks about the difference between that point in Nietzsche and and Tolkien and and creation and he he makes this quote he goes the things of this world are not simply there just for our use right um, but they have a kind of subsistence in themselves which does not require a kind of human legitimation for their existence and I think that really yeah. gets to the heart of the difference the gift of the existence of the other thing is not something that is come by our legitimation of it not even the gift of ourselves and our embodiment and what we're defined um, to be the potential that we 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 have had actualized and so anything we do as existing beings um, is only enactment of that gift that we've been given. And to go into revolt or war against it too, um, like we, we, we see, is, is something that is fundamentally anti-Christ, anti-creation. But I think, it, you know, what, uh, what later will become something of, like you, uh, you've been reading, uh, Reef's Death Works, right? It becomes a, a sort of... Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. And, but getting back to, you know, what you just, uh, you know, quoted from... Um, Tolkien, you, you've got that very sentiment expressed by Goldberry when she is asked by Frodo to, you know, when she when he, Frodo learns that Bombadil is the master, he asks, does that mean that the, you know, the this land belongs to him? And she says, no, all of the things in the land belong to themselves, um, but Tom is the master. So that's the paradox. Yeah. That one in the same time, Things can be subject to other things, but belong to themselves. Yes. Yeah, and, and it's worth noting, again, that Tolkien would have been well aware that the word master, uh, magister, also referred to a teacher. Right. Hmm. The one who instructs you in what you were to do. Um, yeah, the, the, the reason I suspect why bo the, the ring has no impact on Bombadil is that Bombadil is free. And he has absolutely nothing in him that desires dominion right. or domination, excuse right, me. Right. Yep. And which is why he also acknowledges the freedom of everything that exists within his his sphere. Yeah. Well, it, it becomes interesting because, I mean, you know, later you could have uh, you could do a similar juxtaposition with um with uh, Dostoevsky and Nietzsche um, from a different angle. Um, I think with Dostoevsky, you, you have definitely this recognition that, you know, things are broken um, and any kind of Christianity that tries to idealize this, you know, things 
um, that hasn't entered into what, from our experience, often feels like a nihil, a nothingness, right? The fact that, you know, even a, a single child could suffer and die, right, if in a, in a creation made by a good God out of generosity, um, is nothing we can simply just uh, brush our shoulders at. It, it, is, it is something that confronts us and our Christianity has to take seriously. Um, but what I think fascinating about um, Bolt Tolkien is he doesn't present that kind of idealization of things. What he does is he draws off of that rich reality vision, I think, that Christianity offers, creation itself. And he's allowed to address those things very realistically, sensibly, imaginatively, but also create the kind of characters that that I think you get a full honest presentation of what's going on in all these different dimensions of their character as they wrestle with evil, they wrestle with, you know, fantasies of, oh, I could be Sam the Wise, you know. Um, and, and that is something that that uh, that is very realistic. Um, and I think it is because it is tied to that creation vision, whereas these types of, you know, Christianity that, you know, it, it basically can make your life, you know, flourish in untold this worldly senses without any any kind of real strong um, confrontation with with yourself. Um, I think is a you know other than therapeutically. Um, I think is 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 something these works help uh, clear away bad presentations. Of. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, and correct. There is something uh, sagacious in Tolkien's uh, understanding or presentation of human nature that uh, you know takes into account uh, not just corruptibility, but also kind of the seed of corruption that's already present, uh, even yeah. in the best characters. And uh, I think that's uh, you know something that's a big uh, you know very valuable uh, in the work. And it's not just simply you know, weakness, but it, that, you know, people because of their finitude aren't able to rise to the occasion. It's more the, the moral character or the moral fault, the, the moral corruption that is already present. And that, like you noted, Tom, in our world today, in Christian circles, even in some churches that, you know, uh, endeavor to make things, you know, appealing to the uh, fallen uh, you know, dispositions of people who are outside the church or even within it uh, fails to deal with, you know, there's, there's no uh, call to holiness. There's no call to renounce sin. There's just a, just an affirmation of, you know, uh, the good things and uh, no challenge to denounce the bad things. Yeah. And I think that, that, uh, that aspect, I think is, you know, I think that's one of the more troubling parts that we have to deal with now is this way in which um, sin, the way, you know, in terms of kind of uh, self-denial and the putting off of the old and putting on of the new, being perfected um, in by the Spirit in Christ, in union with Christ. I, I think this this notion today is really that we we embrace creation when we embrace people in their current wills to power <laughs> um their self definitions right, right. their self de and and so to 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 respect the dignity of another creature we therefore have to respect their 
autonomy and their, you know, kind of grounding their own being. And I think one of the things that Tolkien points to contra Nietzsche is is the the exact challenge, part of the challenge of the gospel now, and in, in a world that has sort of run with this this Nietzschean vision, is this call back to recognition of what we are and that we are as first being the fact that we are created and created to be and to be a certain kind and to have a certain nature and to unfold it towards its perfection in a certain way. And anything less than that is a participation in anti-creation, a participation in the breaking down, and therefore a, a, a real temptation to be driven by this distortion of dominion and will to power. <laughs> and I think the, the recovery then, of course, is redemption, but that redemption is, is a, a vindication of the creation and a call to truthfully enact it both in accord with what it's created to be, but with an aim towards what it's, you know, to be in its fullness. And I think that really captures, you know, something Tolkien's up to here. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And of course, that's kind of at the heart of uh, what we're fighting today. And we yeah. see, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, I guess, influence and um, it's uh, power, and speak of power, all around us in the academy and and in government and just wherever you look. Yeah, the, the uh, and and it doesn't seem that uh, doesn't seem to be the case that just kind of the common sense realism of just regular people can prevail any longer. That's right. Uh, you know, with with regard to say transgenderism and this this mockery of athletic achievement that we see in the Ivy Leagues you know, with this, uh, this guy who pretends he's a girl swimming against girls uh, and winning championships. Uh, it's pretty evident that at the moment, uh, anyway, that even, even women, here we are on International Women's Day, <laughs> yeah. even women are willing to cash in uh, their own physical, you know, sort of, uh, you know, sort of givenness uh, when, uh, it comes down to this whole matter of, you know, uh, the fact that these things are given, in other words, uh, I think much of feminism, uh, was, uh, given over to this task of kind of clearing away the givenness of reality and grounding, um, you know, kind of everything in our social order in the will. Uh, the yeah. will to self-define. Yeah. So that means that, that women are in this, uh, you know, awful kind of awkward spot. On the one hand, uh, they're getting trounced by guys who pretend to be women. Uh, and on the other hand, they can't vindicate themselves as, you know, J.K. Rowling has attempted to do as being women by virtue of their physical, you know, biology or their physical, you know, constitutions. Well, and, and it is a sense in which uh, it, it is a denial that they have a gift of woman. And that, I think, is is one of the things you see, because it's not it's not about recognizing the gift and the value of the gift and therefore creating something that that affirms that it's rally. It's it's, it's become the the uh, the power to self 
to to sell to to uh, to value what we say we should value about ourselves and others, and by doing that, then what happens when you don't have those others that are going to will to value it the same way? Um, with with gift, there is a actual moral dimension when you reject the gift of something else. Whether that compels action or change is very different. But what they have to use is is kind of power and shaming and top down kind of approaches to force people to accept that valuation because, and then when you move towards what is obviously anti-natural and anti-creation, the kind of, the the trans issue, then they really have to do it. And this is why they're so threatened by any minor questioning of the narrative. This is why they have to shut down all opposition because it is such a fragile construct because it isn't grounded in the gift character reality that it will completely fall out and lose its moral uh, moral authority because it isn't tied to reality. Yeah, I think this is a good place to wrap up the conversation. Um, I think that um, it's, a, it's a fun, uh, and but also kind of a sobering, you know, exercise we've engaged in here. You know, obviously fun in the sense that we're talking about Tolkien and the hobbits, <laughs> but also sobering in the sen- sense that we see all these connections to this insanity we see around us. <laughs> but I think Tolkien knew where things were going, just like he, Lewis knew things where things were going. A lot of people knew where things were going. They had, as Glenn has brought out many times, an ability to look ahead because they saw that these things had to work out this way logically if, if you give the premises that they, they you know, modernists have embraced. Anyway, anything you guys want to say as we say goodbye? I think it, uh, the whole discussion really goes back to the themes in your Bombadil book on domination versus dominion. Yeah. 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 Anything else you want to say, Thomas? We say goodbye. No, I think I threw out there plenty of themes we 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 go back to. But as my as a lot of people write me regularly, they want us to go back to them because they're getting a taste and they want more and they want more. So hopefully, we'll continue to kind of uh, develop those themes. Right, right. Well, thank you for listening to the uh, Theology Podcast. We really do appreciate your interest and support. Um, we have listeners all over the world. A couple of shows back, we talked about, or actually last week, no, two, two weeks back, we talked about Ukraine and, and Russia. And so I was just curious, I made a, ca- a comment in the in the closing moments of that show uh, that we had uh, listeners in those places. So I went and double-checked, and we do. <laughs> there are listeners uh, in four cities in Ukraine and three cities in Russia uh, that uh, tune in uh, to our show regularly. So uh, our prayers go out to all the folks in that part of the world who are uh, dealing with the difficult realities in the ground there, and we pray for them. Uh, But uh, nonetheless, we're glad that we can have conversations like this in the midst of all that. And we're glad that you can listen in. And uh, we do appreciate your support and giving, and uh, thank you for those things. Anyway, that's enough for now. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.